Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labor, and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. This week, we're taking back control. We'll learn all about how survivors find themselves locked out of the financial system as a result of their experiences of exploitation and the trauma it causes. And we'll hear from survivor support organizations and banks about a new initiative to improve survivor access to bank accounts. In the first three episodes of the podcast series, we introduced the connections between global finance and modern slavery, and we began our journey into understanding how the financial sector can mobilize to help end slavery. We learned that around the world, roughly one in every 185 people alive today are enslaved. And we investigated ways the financial sector can be directly and indirectly connected. We've looked at how traces of contemporary slavery are showing up in the financial system, and we've identified how financial and regulatory institutions are learning to detect these signs. We've also discussed the key role that survivors can play in illuminating these crimes. In today's episode, My colleague Alexandra Ciccone from the FAS Secretariat looks in more depth at that connection between finance and survivors of modern slavery. This time around, though, we're not asking what survivors can do for the financial sector, but rather what the financial sector can do for survivors. Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Ciccone. As part of our work with banks and other financial entities at the FAST Secretariat, we've been looking at how to provide survivors with access to safe and reliable financial products. We call this a survivor inclusion initiative. At the moment, we have over a dozen banks involved, including Ally Bank, Bank of America, Bank of the West, Barclays, BMO Financial Group, Citibank, HSBC, LCNB National Bank, Scotiabank, Truist, U.S. Bank, and Wells Fargo. The Secretariat has worked with these banks to organize a system of safe, responsible referrals of survivors of modern slavery and human trafficking from survivor support organizations. In today's episode, we'll discuss how and why this survivor inclusion initiative was established and explain how the referral process works. But first, let's talk about why financial access is so important in the fight to end modern slavery and human trafficking. To help us understand this, I spoke with Sarah Groh the director of the Strategic Initiative on Financial Systems at Polaris, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit working to end sex and labor trafficking in North America. Polaris manages the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline and maintains the Global Modern Slavery Directory, which is a public index of survivor support and anti-trafficking organizations located in almost every country around the globe. Yeah, so there's really a number of factors that make it difficult for survivors to access financial services through kind of more standardized processes. One of the most significant factors is that survivors may not have access to typical identification documents that are often required during a standard account opening process. And this could be because their trafficker confiscated their identification documents, often as a means of control, preventing them from leaving that trafficking situation, or because perhaps they're in the midst of normalizing 
their immigration status and their paperwork is in processing. So that's a, a factor. Another is a lack of permanent street address, which is often required for account openings. Um, so many survivors are facing a lot of economic instability when they're exiting their situation and they may be experiencing unstable housing. So maybe they're kind of couch surfing. They're spending time with different friends and family members, or maybe they're in a shelter that's through a survivor support organization, but they don't have that regular street address. And then another factor is that oftentimes trafficking survivors may have very poor financial histories and credit scores. And that can sometimes be a result of their exploitation. So a trafficker may have used a victim's identity to take out a line of credit or accrue a debt. And when the victim leaves their situation, that debt or poor credit history is still attached to their identity. And it can be really hard to navigate fixing that. So let's take a step back and try to look at these challenges Sarah mentions. What basic financial products are we often taking for granted in our lives? How does a world without access to banking products look like? Timia Nagy, Canadian activist and best-selling author and former financial sector commissioner, helps us understand this further in our current 2020 context. I'll give you one example that was a very personal example that happened to our family again. Believe it or not, my brother immigrated to England about 40 years ago. And because he was a new immigrant to England, he was still in the European Union. He started working in a hotel and his boss was actually a Hungarian guy and he couldn't cash his own check. So the boss actually started offering him that he will convince the hotel to put the check on his name and he will start paying him out except that he never did. And during that process, he actually, his boss said that you should probably move in with me because you're much closer to the workplace and if you're being late, I'm going to have to fire you. Well, to a new immigrant who has only one job and don't know anybody else in the city, I mean, he should have taken notes from his sister's book, but, you know, <laughs> there's only so much you can do. But he's a male, right? So what I said to him, I said, Zoli, you go and get your bank account right away. And he goes, I can't until I have a proper address. And I said, why don't you have a proper address? He goes, my landlord wouldn't want to put me on the reports because he doesn't want to pay taxes after me. So if you don't have a proper address, you can't get a bank account. If you don't have a bank account, you can't get properly paid. And that's just one story in Europe, right? Timea's family story leads us to think about other ways in which the victims' financial identities are stolen and compromised here in the United States. To learn more, I spoke with Martina Vandenberg. She's the founder and president of the Human Trafficking Legal Center, another Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that's doing research on this topic. Martina gives us her insight on how traffickers hijack victims' financial identities and use them to commit tax fraud. So at the Human Trafficking Legal Center, we get requests for legal assistance from all over the United States. And when we started doing this work, we anticipated that we would get requests for civil litigation or for immigration. And I was absolutely startled when we started getting requests for tax assistance and assistance with settling disputes with the IRS. When we dug a little deeper, what we discovered was that the reason trafficking survivors had open cases with the IRS was because the traffickers had stolen their identities and filed false tax returns and collected the tax refunds. 
Here, Ms. Vandenberg illustrates how traffickers exploit victims, not only through forced labor or prostitution, but also through financial fraud in a real-life event. A trafficking survivor was trafficked into forced prostitution. She was only 17. Her trafficker made her open bank accounts using false Social Security numbers. Her trafficker forced her to file false tax returns, and then he collected the refunds. He forced her to put cars that he purchased in her name. He overdrew the accounts. He put money in that she had absolutely no control over, even though the account was in her name, and refused to allow her to file tax returns that were honest and accurate. As a result, she was prosecuted for tax fraud. She spent 13 months in federal prison for tax fraud. The trafficker didn't. And he actually arranged her legal counsel and told her not to talk to the lawyer. She's currently in what's called not collectible, currently not collectible status. But she owes the U.S. government, because of his fraud, almost a quarter of a million dollars. Martina's example shows us how deeply survivors' financial identities are used to the traffickers' benefit and makes us think about the lasting impacts that these damages have on their relationship with money. To learn more, I spoke with Larissa Maxwell, director of Deborah Skate, a project by the Salvation Army in Canada. Larissa has over 16 years of experience working with human trafficking and exploitation, supporting over 1,200 survivors per year. Here, we speak about the complex components around money and the relationship with finance after being trafficked. One of the first pieces that we talk about is reorienting the relationship to money. If you think about someone who has been trafficked, they have been bought and sold for a currency. They've often seen a lot of money change hands in front of them, yet they've never received that money. Additionally, money has been used to facilitate their abuse. So when someone is in recovery or aftercare, it doesn't immediately just reorient into a healthy relationship with finances. Often it feels like money has power over that individual and there has to be some work to reorient that relationship. The other piece that's important to understand is that for most survivors, whether it's labor trafficking, even organ trafficking or sex trafficking, they've gotten into what we call transactional living. They're used to being involved in something where you do something to get something else. And so often in recovery, that is a challenge because it can be difficult to establish motivation for healthy financial decisions when you're still in transactional living. I'll do this to get that. And I will do that for you, but you have to give me this in return. And not everything in life works that way. Another piece that we see is that when you have been exploited, you have been used to very severe, very impoverished circumstances and a lack of access to resources. So something called a scarcity mentality starts to develop so that when you actually are in recovery and let's say you start to receive funds again, maybe you get a criminal compensation amount, maybe you're working again, uh, maybe you're uh, receiving some government assistance. Because you're so used to not having money, you actually really struggle with how to spend it. So what happens is you might spend all of it right away because you're nervous that you're never going to see it again or someone's going to take it away. Or it could be the other way that you don't spend it. We've actually walked with survivors who will not cash a check 
they'll just hold on to the check because they're so scared to actually have that amount and that someone could take it from them. Larissa also gave us insights on what it looks like to start healing from an abusive relationship with money and finance and the importance of having financial independence and knowledge during this process. When you come out of trafficking, it can be so difficult. You often think, maybe I'll just go back. I'll go back to the exploiter. I'll go back to exploitation because that might be easier than trying to do all of this stuff for myself now. And I feel so overwhelmed. I feel so ashamed. Some survivors have addictions and mental health issues. And so it can be like, I'll just go back to the hell I know versus this new hell, which I don't know. And so when we can build economic independence, meaning that person can stand on their own two feet outside of an exploiter, we actually see less returns to exploitive labor, exploitive sex work or sexual exploitation. But there is some keys to how to do that properly. And especially for the financial industry who might consider being a part of some of these survivor inclusion initiatives that we're working on throughout the world. The first one is you want to avoid a savior approach. We are not here to walk someone through the healing process and be their healing center that they have to depend on. We want to fortify and build that in them. So our goal should be empowerment. And we play the role of a guide, a coach, a facilitator, but not a savior. Because what can happen is if we take that savior role that we're the one responsible for helping them and giving them back everything in their life, we actually become a replacement perpetrator. Because think about it, that's usually the lie the trafficker sold them, was I'll help you with your problems, I'll take care of you, I'll meet that core unmet need, I've got your back, and all of that was a lie. And so for us to take that role again, what we want to do is actually build their own independence from the inside out, that they'd be able to stand on their own two feet. So you do that by building up their competency and their personal agency to forge a new financial future. So to just do everything for someone and to just kind of go, here's a blank slate, that's actually not super helpful. You want to engage them in all steps of that process. After this discussion with Larissa, I started to ponder on the ongoing challenges that survivors face on a regular basis and how the current financial and public health crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic is rightfully intensifying their risks. I spoke with Sarah Byrne, an attorney from Moore and Van Allen in Charlotte, North Carolina, who's led the firm's human trafficking pro bono practice for the past seven years. Here, Sarah gives us her understanding of the current state of affairs related to victims of exploitation and shines a light on where our systems, the ones that help us identify, intervene, and support victims, are falling behind. When I talk about this, I really kind of describe it as a perfect storm. The impact of the pandemic on human trafficking is, of course, significant, but it's really not unpredictable if you think about the effects of not only a financial crisis, but a public health crisis on the global stage. There's been a real impact on survivors being able to seek protective orders or gaining access to their children or child support in family court. The criminal process, you know, both detention and prosecution hearings have been impacted over time. And those are very often the ways that we identify a survivor or a, a trafficking situation. Healthcare providers, needless to say, are stretched. Um, and as many know, Polaris says that 88% of victims access a healthcare provider during their victimization. So 
we are, of course, you know, distracted in identifying human trafficking. And, you know, so many people, understandably, are not accessing medical services if they don't, you know, don't consider themselves absolutely needing it during this time. So that relationship has become attenuated. Schools, the International Labor Organization says that 90% of the world's students' education has been affected. Our schools are a really important part of our victim identification and support and education around this. Um, and lastly, shelters and other survivors, service providers. I saw something on PBS that said 5% of safe houses designated for human trafficking survivors have been shut down in the last six months. So the nonprofits and other NGOs that support our survivors are really suffering, which um, they're really, honestly, the, the backbone to ensuring the safety and service provision to survivors. So again, I'm back to my theme of a perfect storm. So we have heard from different experts in the field on what the problems are, but what can be done to try and solve or ease these issues? To help us find the answers, I spoke to Megan Lundstrom, founder of the Avery Center, formerly known as Free Our Girls. To start, let's talk about economic empowerment and how it looks like for survivors. So I can speak a little bit from my own lived experience, and I can also speak just as a direct service provider walking alongside other survivors. So economic empowerment, I think, is a very broad term, and it can look a lot of different ways for different folks, but it can also look different at different steps in a person's journey. So initially, upon exiting an exploitive situation, some of that economic empowerment can just be concepts like housing first. So making sure people have their basic needs met so that they can heal, they can get sleep, they can eat, they can go to school, those types of things and start to build. Further on in somebody's journey, an economic empowerment might look like living wage employment. It might look like felon-friendly employment so that folks can access ways to earn living wage so that they can support themselves. And then I think throughout all of that, but once somebody is at least on paper financially stabilized, so to speak, economic empowerment can look like really digging into some of the trauma behind financial abuse that happens during human trafficking and learning how to build trusting relationships, how to identify individuals who can be trusted and why and what information can be shared with them. And, and that just ties back into this relational component of the trauma that's endured by survivors of human trafficking. So this can look like an intimate partner or a roommate, but it can also look like relationships with financial institutions and learning how to trust kind of those, those big corporations that can feel really big and scary and learning how to work with professionals at those institutions as they continue to accomplish their financial dreams. And this is something that we all wish for survivors to accomplish their dreams. So what can be done to remedy the traumas experienced and help them foster economic empowerment? Trauma happens kind of at these two different levels. So you have trauma and harm that's happened, for example, on a credit report. So when a survivor pulls their credit and they look at the damage that's been caused to them, that can create severe, significant 
barriers to accessing financial stability as they navigate their journey to freedom. And so I think it's really important to address that and understand that a lot of times these financial crimes look like it was the victim that was the criminal. Our legal system, unfortunately, just isn't all the way caught up with this crime just yet. I think we're making headways. We're starting to have those discussions. So all of the different institutions that are involved in that. So we have the criminal justice system. We have the survivor. We have financial institutions. We have credit reporting bureaus that really need to be communicating to better understand how trafficking and financial crimes play out and then impact survivors through things like their credit history. So you have that component of that trauma, but you also have this relational piece with trust. And so survivors a lot of times will avoid engaging in any type of a relationship that requires them to take risk because they have been harmed. We've been hurt by the people that told us you can trust us or have we should be able to trust them. They've been intimate partners, family members, employers, people we thought were friends. And so when those people have violated us at our most fundamental level, it can be really hard to then start to take those risks again. And what somebody who maybe hasn't experienced that type of complex trauma would see as just a a simple business transaction for a survivor that can be a giant leap in trust and building relational safety. So we need folks at those institutions that are able to understand that and help survivors navigate kind of that emotional and psychological components of the trauma in addition to the legal and credit aspects of it. So this point of financial institutions is key. Can you tell us how financial entities can work with other sectors to build tools and products with the survivor's needs in mind? So financial institutions specifically can be partnering, I think, first and foremost with survivors. We can't do this work without survivor voices being centered in it. So it's one thing to kind of observe what's needed or make some educated guesses. But unless we're really talking with the individuals who have experienced this crime, we can't really understand how to adequately serve them and meet individual needs and how to navigate systems that are maybe already set up, but folks are, again, falling through those cracks. So we first and foremost need to bring in those survivor voices and those lived experiences to inform how to move forward. And then I think the sky's the limit from there in terms of how financial institutions and the financial sector can partner with other sectors. I think partnering with nonprofits is a great one, but also partnering with legal aid that can help survivors kind of navigate some of those issues where there's an intersection between finance and legal issues. And then we're looking bigger too. So how can we create employment opportunities for survivors? What do scholarships look like for survivors to pursue education goals? So yeah, I, I think there's so much opportunity, but really it starts with listening to survivors. The consensus is to really listen to survivors and hear about their experiences to be able to provide a comprehensive and mending relationship with money. This is why the Financial Sector Commission integrated the Survivor Inclusion Initiative into its goals. To help us understand what this Financial Sector Commission, or FSC, entailed, former Commissioner Professor Barry Koch gives us his insight into the program. To start, 
let's go over the basics. Welcome, Barry. Can you tell us what the Financial Sector Commission was and how did it come about? It was a response to calls from the G7 and the G20 and the United Nations General Assembly and Security Council to partner with the private sector in tackling modern slavery and human trafficking. And more specifically, in the private sector, it was the finance sector. So it was the formation of a public sector-private sector partnership between the governments of Liechtenstein and Australia and the Netherlands. And the UN University Center for Policy Research was the secretariat. It was convened by the Prime Minister of Liechtenstein and co-sponsored by Nobel laureate Mohammed Yunus, who is the father of microcredit. There were 25 commissioners. They were representing many different perspectives of the financial sector. There were financial experts. There were development financing organizations, large hedge funds, global regulators, trade unions. And we also had two survivors of modern slavery and human trafficking uh, making up the commissioners. And we had a one-year mandate. And uh, during that one year, we met four times around the world. We had four large consultations, one in Sydney, one in New York, one in Liechtenstein, and one in the Netherlands. And we published a blueprint. It was announced in September of 2019 at the uh, UN General Assembly. The blueprint is available online at fastinitiative.org. It is a very, very substantive and thoughtful document, and it is user-friendly, and I would recommend and urge uh, anyone who's listening to this to have a go at it, at least read the executive summary, because I think you'll find it to be, as I said, very thoughtful and very substantive and useful. There are five specific goals that are enumerated in the blueprint. They are goals to mobilize the finance sector. And within the blueprint, there are what we call toolkits. I won't list all of them, but I'll mention two of them. One is a risk mapping toolkit, which can be used by banks and other financial institutions to risk map their exposure to trafficking, either directly or indirectly. So in commercial lending, corporate lending, trade finance, they can evaluate and risk assess their exposure to things like supply chain exposure, labor trafficking in the supply chain. There are also financial investigation tools, and the Survivor Inclusion Initiative is one of the um, outputs of the blueprint, as we had mentioned just a moment ago. So, Barry, what is the Survivor Inclusion Initiative, and where did it come from? The Survivor Inclusion Initiative is a collaboration of financial institutions, mostly banks, and survivor service provider organizations and other relevant entities. And the initiative aims to promote financial access and services for survivors. Really, the idea is reintegration into mainstream financial services. What we knew and what many people in this area know is that survivors often find that the traffickers have hijacked their financial identities for money laundering, for financial fraud, and that can ruin the victim's creditworthiness and can make it very difficult to reintegrate into mainstream financial services. It can make it difficult to get a job. It can make it difficult to get an apartment. 
And of course, all of that puts them at risk of being re-victimized. So we brought together a group of banks. We created a framework for financial institutions and service providers and support organizations and relevant government actors to collaborate to provide the survivors easier access to basic services like debit cards and credit cards and checking and savings accounts. And hopefully it will be extended to financial literacy, financial education services, restoration of credit worthiness and the like. Basically, I reached out to my friends and former industry colleagues in the compliance areas of these large financial institutions. These are people who are actively involved in the fight against trafficking. I explained the initiative. They understood it right away. They were eager to sign on, as were their banks. I worked very closely with uh, our colleague, Sarah Crow from Polaris. She was really the, the main partner in reaching out to the service providers. And together, we brought the uh, banks and the service providers together and created this initiative, which has a formal structure. And we were very pleased to announce it at the uh, opening of the UN General Assembly in September of 2019. And I personally believe that we have proved the concept and seen some great successes. We've seen approximately 700 accounts, we're told, have been opened for survivors. Many of them have been opened by HSBC in the UK. That bank deserves a lot of credit. Scotiabank in Canada has also been a trailblazer in this effort. But we have seen some really nice success stories in the sense of approximately 700 survivors being reintegrated and therefore uh, reducing the risk of re-victimization. These numbers are very encouraging, and we are hopeful that the program can continue its growth. So let's try and understand how the Survivor Inclusion Initiative actually works in trying to mitigate risks for survivors as well as financial institutions through our workflow and referral process. To help us walk us through this, I've asked Professor James Cocaine, head of the Secretariat, to join us. Thanks, Alex. First, let's talk about the different groups that comprise the Survivor Inclusion Initiative framework. So we at the Secretariat don't find survivors. What we do is connect survivors and survivor support organizations to financial institutions and then give them a framework for safe onboarding of a survivor to ensure that they get access to basic banking tools. Our role at FAST is basically just matchmaking in the first instance and then helping all the different banks and survivor support organizations that are working like that in pairs to learn from each other and spread good practice around the world. But in order to get there, we at the Secretariat have gotten organized and created a platform where financial institutions and survivor support organizations get the answers they need before signing up, as well as support while being a part of the initiative. For this, we provide different materials to facilitate cooperation between participating entities. This might look like background work to ensure regulators from the financial industry are comfortable with the risk management approach that the financial institution takes during their onboarding process, while taking into consideration different roles within jurisdictions. Additionally, we provide training and resources, plus we put together convenings that facilitate peer learning and keep us all up to date. 
In the future, we are also hoping to incorporate financial literacy tools as well as a path to the credit repair that survivors so desperately need. So, James, what does it actually mean for an institution to be a part of SII? Once a financial institution joins, they're committing to working with survivor support organizations to ensure these financial services and products are made available to confirmed survivors of modern slavery and human trafficking. Each bank and each survivor support organization is responsible for its own compliance and for its own risks. The Secretariat facilitates learning across the group. We track overall progress across the initiative and we figure out where we need to bring in new expertise and learning, for example, on financial literacy or in the future, credit repair. To learn more about the Survivor Inclusion Initiative or to explore the possibility of joining us, please head over to our website at fastinitiative.org slash implementation slash survivor inclusion. Here, you will find a list of all of our participating financial institutions as well as survivor support organizations. Additionally, we include a list of frequently asked questions related to our program. If your organization is interested in joining, please fill out the form at the bottom of the page to contact us. In the meantime, visit us at fastinitiative.org, on Twitter at FincomSlavery, or on LinkedIn's Fast Initiative profile. Please send us your feedback and suggestions by email to info at fastinitiative.org. And until next time, thanks for listening. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.